from the impeachment hearings to some important pro-life developments to how to answer Muslims. We've got you covered right here today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, the impeachment hearings are underway. I want to tell you once again, I will not be giving daily commentary on every detail or writing a new article every day on every detail for several reasons. I'll explain that in a moment. But welcome to the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884 is the number to call. So, I mentioned a few weeks back that I will not get caught up with the impeachment fever. This will not be the entire focus of my life or the flow of this radio broadcast, which is not conservative news commentary, which is not an arm of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, or devoted to defending or attacking President Trump. That's not why we're here. That's not what God's called me to do. It's called me to be a voice of moral sanity and spiritual clarity, to be your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution, to tackle the controversies, to do the the hard things that others don't want to do, and to do them with joy, and hopefully with wisdom, and with compassion, all grounded in Scripture. So, we could get caught up in a frenzy, just this news report, that news report, getting upset. I'm I'm not going to do that. These are big issues, very big issues. And the, the immediate destiny of our nation in the coming years is, is definitely at stake. And who knows exactly what could come out of these hearings, positive or negative. And when there are major things that I feel I can comment on, I will. But there are others that are just focused on this. They'll have a lot better insight than I will in terms of just every day the hearings back and forth. And again, It cannot be my focus because it is not the only major thing happening in our world and the major thing that that we want to draw attention to. So how do I look at the hearings overall? What can I say overall? I can say this. Number one, I recognize that Democrats were talking about impeachment long before the Ukraine call came up. I mean, this has been talked about for months and months and months. So I would take the Ukraine call issues, the quid pro quo accusations much more seriously if they had not been on the heels of the whole Russia collusion stuff and then months and months and months of talk of of impeachment. So does it seem that Democrats were just looking for a way to try to get rid of Donald Trump? Yes. That that seems self-evident. Yes, absolutely. No question about it. All right. That's that's number one. Number two, My posture is let God's will be done. What if, what here, just some some scenarios for you, okay? What if there is corruption in the Trump White House? What if Donald Trump is guilty and should be impeached and removed and that God wants to bring Mike Pence in, right? Or, Or a different Republican leader. And that was God's plan. Or what if God's plan was to expose quote, deep state corruption and the extreme bias and agenda of the Democrats and to get Donald Trump more easily reelected in 2020, 
or what if God is shaking things, or, or what if this is the work of the enemy to destroy in different ways and that God will get a counterpurpose out of that, God's ways are a lot bigger than our ways. So my prayer is simple. My prayer is very simple. My, my prayer is, God, may truth triumph. Can, can we all pray that? Whether you voted for President Trump, whether you love him, when you'd never vote for him, whether you loathe him, could we all pray that? If you're a follower of Jesus and want what's best for our country, may truth triumph in the impeachment hearings. Isn't that a good prayer to pray? How about because there are a lot of things going on, and, there, and, and what about the Bidens? Where do they fit in all this, and how is this going to impact 2020 on both sides? <clears throat> so big questions. To me, it's a simple prayer to pray. I like to pray prayers that are totally kingdom partisan, God partisan, and not individual partisan. So may truth triumph. How about this? May justice be done. If this is a witch hunt to take down the president, if this is an attempt to take down someone that that is being used for certain righteous purposes in America in the midst of his flaws and shortcomings, if that's what's going on, may justice be done. Or if there's a gross travesty of justice on the part of the White House, may justice be done. May truth triumph. May justice be done. And may God's best for America come to pass. We can all, all, on all sides of this issue, come together in a united front and pray these prayers regarding the impeachment hearings, regarding the Democrats, the Republicans, and the president. What, why, what, how could you miss with a prayer like that? Now, now I, I want to say one other thing that's important in all this, all right? A third point, and then I want to go back to praying prayers that are God-partisan, not party-partisan or individual-partisan. I'll explain what I mean in a moment. But let's remember that many of us voted for Donald Trump primarily as a vote against Hillary Clinton. In other words, we had concerns about Donald Trump. We didn't know what kind of president he would be. We didn't know if he would keep his promises about appointing pro-life justices or nominating pro-life or conservative justices and and standing for religious liberty and moving the embassy to Jerusalem and other things that he said he would do that, that were important to us, okay? All right, now we all voted for different reasons, but for many conservative evangelicals. So this, this is something we need to remember that we voted for him, many of us with concern about his past, about his personality, about his way of operation, his bull in a china shop type dealings, the way he could disparage and demean and attack others. I mean, look, remember, he basically accused Ted Cruz's father, Rafael Cruz, of, of being involved in the assassination of JFK and insulted the looks of, of Heidi Cruz, which was ridiculous anyway to do. I mean, she's a fine-looking woman, but the, the, the absurdity of this, okay? So we didn't vote, some of us, with total enthusiasm, but we voted for him with hope, with some concern, but with hope. All right, so now that he's bombarded, bombarded, bombarded day and night and lied about day and night, all kinds of false charges brought against him day and night, and the media's been doing this and and Democrats have been doing this and perhaps, quote, the deep state has been trying to bring him down. All right. So that would mean people still in Washington, but behind the scenes that that are entrenched there trying to to bring him down. So let's say all this is happening. And at the same time, he's done a lot of good. He's kept a lot of his promises and a lot of the things that we were hoping he would do. He has done and continues to do. That doesn't mean I have to defend him at every turn. 
It doesn't mean that, that I have to put my identity in with him at every turn. If you're going to judge me, look at the president. You want to know my life? Look at the president. No, you want to judge me? Look at me. Look at my life. Look at my testimony. Look, look at my ministry, my conduct, my wife, my, my family, my children, my grandchildren. Look at, look at me and look at those around me, okay? And look at how we've served. And, and if you, same with you. If, if I want to get to know you, the biggest question is not who you voted for. It reflects something, but it's not the biggest question. Biggest question is, how do you conduct yourself as a child of God? How do you conduct yourself as a man of God or a woman of God? How do you conduct yourself in your home? How do you conduct yourself in the workplace? What's been the fruit and the testimony of your life over the last year or five or 10 or 20? Look, there are, there are fine Christians who voted for Barack Obama and, and who voted for Hillary Clinton. I don't get it. I don't understand it given their pro-abortion stance and, and their, their pro-homosexuality stance and other things like that. I don't get it. But I, I'm not going to look at the whole quality of your life and your walk with God and your history and write you off because that any more than you should write someone off because they're voting for Donald Trump. You know, I, I, I tweeted earlier, here, here's the deal. I'm not going to judge your salvation by whether or not you voted for Donald Trump. Don't judge mine. And most people are saying amen to it, but some are saying, no way, it's impossible. If you're a Christian, you couldn't vote for Trump. Well, I could just say the same thing. If it's impossible if you're a Christian, vote for Hillary Clinton. I don't understand why a Christian would vote for someone who espouses abortion so radically and passionately, uh, among other things. That, to me, is a deal breaker. Just like I, I could not understand how someone could vote for a pro-slavery candidate in the days of slavery. And if it meant there were two pro-slavery candidates who I vote for, I couldn't vote for either. All right. And there's certain things where the line is drawn. You say, okay, I can't. I can't vote for you. All right. And there are Christians that voted third party or sat out the election. I respect that. I respect that. But for those of us that did vote for the president, just remember, as I wrote a whole book with that title, he's not our savior. And we don't have to defend him at every point. Now, when he's falsely accused... Or when those who voted for him, who happen to be white, are now called white supremacists or worship at the altar of white supremacy and, and, and espouse garbage and lies like that, yeah, I'll confront them. I'll confront them. Just like, you know, in a heartbeat, if the, if the racism was going the other way, I'd confront it. God knows that. And if you've been listening for years, you know that. So bear that in mind during all this. If the president did something that wasn't the best, I don't have to defend it. If it's not an impeachable offense, I'll say that, all right? But we, let's not get caught up where our whole identity is in being for Trump or against Trump. It's a big error, big error. Okay, what do I mean when I say that I, I don't pray partisan prayers? I pray God-partisan prayers. Here's what I mean. During the elections, I do not pray for a candidate to be elected. I pray for God's choice and God's will and God's plan. That's what I pray for during the elections. I don't presume to, to know for sure what God's will is. I know my responsibility as a voter and the decisions I'm going to make as a voter. But I don't presume to know what God's plan is, what he's going to bring to pass and why. What if he wants to bring in a candidate that's a destructive candidate? It's part of judgment on America, part of us reaping what we sow. We're getting what we deserve. We're getting what we ask for. So I pray, God, your will be done. What about when I'm having a theological dispute with someone? Or here, 
uh, with with some of the tweets and stances of Bishop Swan that I believe are so destructive and, and stir up racial hatred. I get on my knees and I say, God, show him and show me any blind spots that we have. In other words, I'm going to pray the same prayer for him as I pray for me. Otherwise, I'm putting myself in the posture of saying, well, I am holy and he is not. I am righteous and he is not. I'm the good guy and he's the bad guy. Whereas we both may have serious blind spots that need help and that need attention. Or it doesn't matter if someone has a 90% blind spot here, you have a 10% blind spot here. I don't want any. So we pray, God, open eyes. So that's what I'll pray. I'll pray a prayer that if the person was in the same room with me and they had any relationship with God, they'd be able to say amen to that prayer. I can agree with that. All right, coming back with some important pro-life news. Don't go anywhere. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Our friends, uh, before we transition to yet another subject and talk about answering Muslims and why this is important for us as followers of Jesus, I want to give you an important pro-life update, share some good news with you. And for everyone that's listening in the North Carolina area, I want you to hear a very, very important announcement. We have had Justin Reeder on the broadcast with us a few times already. He is a former businessman, grieved and burdened by abortion, who has now given his life to the pro-life cause and launched uh, an organization, Love Life Charlotte, that then expanded to Love Life North Carolina and is now working in other states so some big things happening this weekend. Uh, Justin, welcome back to the Line of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Dr. Brown, for having me on. Sure thing. All right, let's start first with what's happening this weekend, and then we want to get to what's happening in New York City and some other good reports nationally. So this weekend, what's going on? Yeah, so this is our Week 40 prayer walk. We do these, these prayer walks for 40 weeks every year, and this is the culmination of that 40-week journey of hope. So this uh, Wednesday, actually, we have congregations, over 300 congregations that are praying and fasting today all across the city. And on Saturday, we're going to join together for a prayer walk uh, in Charlotte, in Greensboro, in Raleigh, and in New York City uh, from 9 a.m. to 12. All the details are on our website, lovelife.org, all the details of locations and where to show up and parking details. But we're going to come together as the body of Christ to be an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we would be one as King the Father are one, so that the world would believe. So we come together under under the banner of King Jesus for a time of worship and prayer, Um, not just at at any place. We're gathering together at the the largest abortion clinics across our state. Uh, Here in Charlotte, it's on Latrobe Drive, and in Greensboro, it's on Randleman Road, and in Raleigh, it's on Drake Circle. And we come together for this time of worship and prayer, uh, not in protest, not in yelling or screaming, but calling on heaven, uh, calling heaven down to these places. And, and since we've been doing that, we've seen a significant drop in abortion. We've seen over 1,700 families that have made the choice for life over the last three and a half years. But this is the culmination of that 40-week journey. So, yeah, we would invite people to come and join us. You don't have to be uh, part of one of our partnering churches to be there. If you want to stand for the things that, that God loves, 
uh, come and stand for life uh, with us this Saturday. All right. So what what actually happens? People are going to come together. Why has that been fruitful? Why has that made an impact? How has it impacted Christians? And what effect has it had directly on the abortion industry? Yeah, so in the church, just starting with that, I mean, there's there's been such a ripple effect of unity in the body of Christ. We know that when we engage in battle uh, together, spiritual battle, uh, unity is a natural ripple effect of that, and there's been such an activation of God's people. This, what we say is this isn't a pro-life movement, and we're not trying to raise up a bunch of pro-life ad- advocates. Uh, we want to raise up true followers of Jesus. This is about advancing the kingdom of God, and so as we pe- see people coming out and engaging in this, the tide is rising in all areas. Yes, we're activating sidewalk counselors and mentors and orphan care families, which is incredible to see, but really what is happening is we're learning to die to ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. So in every way, the tide is rising. We hear it all the time from pastors. The congregation that I take out to the prayer walk is a completely different congregation that I bring back from that prayer walk. So there's a, there's a move happening within the church, a revival and awakening within the church. But also we see when light shows up to the darkest places in our city, darkness has to leave. We've seen a significant drop in people showing up for abortions when the church is present. We've seen workers that have left the industry, two of them just left uh, last week from the Charlotte Abortion Clinic. Uh, we've seen people encounter God. We were in New York City a few weeks ago. Uh, I was up there a few weeks ago for the prayer walk, and a pedestrian was just driving his car uh, past the prayer walk, right past the abortion clinic there on Bleecker and Mott in Lower Manhattan. And when he was driving his car uh, down that street, he felt the presence of God in a very tangible way. He began weeping because he encountered the presence mm. of God, pulled his car over, and then came and joined us at the prayer walk with him and his wife. They were just pedestrians driving by, but they encountered God. He was weeping. Uh, you can see the video on our Facebook page, weeping as he encountered God like he's never encountered the Lord before. So uh, miracles take place when, when the Church comes together. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. And if we had hours, you could give hours of stories about what God's done, what you've experienced. Lives change, moms that run the way to have abortions, abortion workers. We've been stirred by stories you've shared in the past. Before we go to New York City, what's the website again where people can go to find out what to do, where to where to be, at what time? Lovelife.org. As soon as you go on the homepage, You'll see week 40 details that you can click on, um, and you get all the information for all four cities on lovelife.org. All right, so Justin, you got burdened to do something in New York after New York passed some of the most radical abortion laws in America. Some of my friends on Long Island were burdened to do something, so I went out and spent time with them and then connected them with you. So you've been actively working in the greater New York area. What, what's happening? What's going on? I mean, this is a tough nut to crack. Uh, so much going on in New York. There can be a lot of skepticism and, you know, hard to mobilize people. But what are you seeing happen in greater New York City? Yeah, it's really been incredible to watch as we've seen churches come, to, come together all across the five boroughs and even beyond in Jersey and, and even in the upstate all coming together. Uh, it's really been an incredible thing to, to experience as we're there in not only the most influential city in the world, but it's, it's the abortion capital of America. Uh, there's such a stronghold there. 
But uh, as the church has been coming together over the last few months, prayer walks there, uh, we've seen that same bond of unity through the body of Christ. Uh, but we've also, again, seen miracles uh, take place. We had just this last week a, uh, a two moms that made the choice for life on Saturday, and there was a physical even struggle. We know it's a spiritual battle, but it was literally playing itself out in the physical right in front of our eyes as the church was out there, the sidewalk counselors were there. Uh, they were ministering to a mom on the sidewalk, and she was hearing that there's other options for her. She does not have to have the abortion. And the Planned Parenthood escorts physically grabbed her by the arm and started to pull her into the abortion clinic. Um, and in the midst of that, one of our counselors reached out their hand and said, baby, you don't have to do that. And that she took her hand. This was all happening right in the middle of the church being down there. They're seeing it all take place. She took the hand of that counselor, and she made the choice for life that day. Mm. Uh, we're, we're seeing people that are scheduled for death that are getting life. Uh, the, the week prior to that, a mom was uh, there for her second-day abortion. It was a two-day abortion. She's 18 weeks pregnant. On Friday, she started uh, the, the process. They had put the laminary in to soften her cervix. She was there Saturday to have the baby forcefully removed while it was alive. Uh, but she made the choice for life that morning, and she immediately wanted to start reversing it. So our counselors took her to the ER in Midtown in New York City, and for eight hours we battled with the OBGYN there to remove mm. the laminaria to try to stop this abortion from happening. They didn't want to do it. They made our counselors leave the room. They pulled in other doctors, and they tried to convince her to go back to Planned Parenthood to take care of that, that issue. And after eight hours of battling with them and having one of our pro-life doctors here from North Carolina on the phone with them there, they finally removed it at about 10 o'clock that night. And this mom and her and this, this dad were fighting now for the life of their child when hours before they were about to end it. We're seeing the child alive on the, on the ultrasound. We're hearing the heartbeat. This is a living child still in the womb. Unfortunately, on Sunday morning, um, her her water broke, which began the labor process. They gave birth to their child, 18 weeks, uh, but the child was named, found out it was a little boy. They named him Joseph, um, and th this, the church was there every step of the way with this family, and Joseph got a proper burial this last Friday mm. from one of the churches you connected me with, actually, Dr. Brown, in Staten Island that uh, paid for the entire service, took care of all, all of the logistics and all the financial burden, and we laid Joseph to rest in his own little baby casket this last Friday. And at the end of that service, the dad gave his heart to Jesus. Wow. And so we're, we're seeing just an amazing work as the Church, as there's a Christian witness at the darkest place in New York City. Amazing. What a story. And, and Justin, last question, just have a minute. How's this affecting the pastors in Greater New York? You know, I think it's the thing I hear over and over, Dr. Brown, is that we were burdened, especially after this this law came um, came forward earlier this year. But they just didn't know what to do, and they were praying and asking God, "How do we respond? What do we do?" And this has been an answer to prayer for them. They they wanted to mobilize, they just didn't know quite how to do it. So it's given the Church a vehicle. Love Life is simply a vehicle to mobilize the body of Christ. Love Life is not the end game. Love Life is not doing the mentoring, not doing the sidewalk counseling. That's the Church that's doing it. We're simply just giving them a vehicle to mobilize through. 
Got it. All right, friends, go to lovelife.org. Lovelife.org. If you're in North Carolina, participate. Even if you haven't been part of the 40 weeks leading up to this, listen, your presence makes a difference. Just think of it. Just physically showing up for a few hours, walking, praying, being with other believers could literally save lives, could literally influence the way laws go in the years ahead, could could literally help awaken other Christians. So it it's something that most everyone can figure out a way to do. Schedule some time, unless you're going to be away or physically unable to be there. Come out with your family. It is something for the whole family. Lovelife.org. Be sure not to miss it. You can be part of changing history, saving lives. Justin, keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Dr. Brown. All right. of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, a lot is swirling in the the world around us. I commented earlier on the broadcast today about the impeachment hearings, my perspective. I may write something on that, but we're not going to be focused on impeachment hearings day and night. There's a world going on around us with needs and things we want to address. And We're going to focus on something very, very important, namely how to answer Muslims. You think, what? In the middle of America being shaken and all this stuff going on around us, that's what we're going to talk about? Oh, yeah, we are. My guest is Professor Daniel Janicek. His book, The Guide to Answering Islam, What Every Christian Needs to Know About Islam and the Rise of Radical Islam. So not just reaching Muslims, but how do we respond to radical Islam? Uh, Daniel received his Ph.D. in historical theology and apologetics from the London School of Theology with his dissertation on John of Damascus, first apologist to the Muslims. And he's currently an adjunct professor of apologetics and Islamic studies at Southern Evangelical Seminary and Columbia International University. Hey, Daniel, great to have us on the air with us. Glad we could set this up. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you all. I'm looking forward to this. Great. So let me let me just throw out a softball your way, but one that is relevant to many. Your average person listening, we have folks listening, viewing around the world, but say your average American Christian listener, why should they care? I mean, who cares about answering Islam? Why, why does this actually matter? Why should we care? Well, actually, there are two very good reasons. One is that uh, as we look historically at Islam for the last 1,400 years, there is um, a movement uh, where it has first taken over the Middle East, and as it's moved into different countries and uh, the population grows of, uh, of Muslims, then Islam becomes more prevalent and more demanding. So we need to understand what to expect. But the greater reason, the second reason, is that we need to reach out to Muslims. They do not know Christ. They are lost, and they are following what I believe is a false god, and if we are truly concerned, if we do have the truth as Christians, 
then this is the greatest opportunity that we have in this time to reach out to the many Muslims who are here in the United States or that we have contact with as we travel. So my greater reason is that we need to reach out with truth and love, truth in the gospel, truth about Islam, and love for the Muslim, because they need to know that love. They need to know the love of Christ. So that is my main purpose, main purpose in writing the book, main purpose in reaching out. Got it. So how did you yourself get interested in the subject of Islam? Well, for many years I taught on apologetics and world religions, and I, I, I love meeting people from different cultures, different religions, talking to them and getting to know them, and having opportunities to reach out to them uh, with the gospel of Christ, because I want them to know uh, the, the truth that I have found. So through that, I realized um, in the late 90s, that um, uh, there were over a billion Muslims at that time, now about 1.6 billion, and they did not know the Lord. So I had been reaching out to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and non-Christians and atheists, and I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the people. But I began to realize that uh, God has a mission for us. More of us need to realize that uh, for those two reasons that I gave, we need to reach out to Muslims. And so um, I was at Columbia International University there teaching uh, apologetics, and um, they started a program in Muslim studies. So I did another master's. I did my MDiv there first, and then I did a master's in uh, Muslim studies. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Had some great, great teachers from around the world Uh who taught me um, in that uh, course. And then um, I had the opportunity to then go on to do my Ph.D. at London School of Theology with some terrific supervisors, uh, Tony Lane, who was the head of research in theology, and Peter Riddell, who's one of the uh, finest uh, Christian statesmen uh, dealing with Islam today. And so I studied under them and, and wrote on John. But I did John of Damascus also because he was an eyewitness to what was going on in the early years, the first 100 years. And I found it to be fascinating because that is the information that we as Christians need to know about how Islam started, because we will be amazed at how the traditional story that we hear today is not what happened historically. And that's My a friend. lot of what the book is about. All right, friends, I'm speaking with the Guide to Answering Islam, the author of The Guide to Answering Islam, Daniel Janicek. All right, let's start here then in terms of diving in. Tell us the real story of the birth of Islam and the origin of the Quran. Okay. Well, in the, in the book, just the structure itself will help you understand what I'm doing. I have four sections in each chapter. There are 18 chapters of... Uh, Four main sections, the historical background, the, the uh, teachings of uh, Islam and Sharia and so on, the, uh, the, the radical Islam and the Crusades and what we need to know about that. And the fourth section would be dealing with uh, reaching out to Islam, what God is doing in the world today and reaching out to Islam and what we need to do as well. But in each chapter, I have uh, it broken up into four parts. The first part is de- would deal with what Islam says about these particular chapters. So whether it's on the, uh, the, the early
Islam or early Arabia before uh, Islam came about, the origins of Islam, the beginnings of the Quran, the development of the Quran, Muhammad, uh, all these traditions, uh, then the, the, the teachings and so on. The first section is uh, an overview of what Muslims themselves will say about those things from their own sources. So um, I'm just using their own words and giving a picture so that uh, people can read the book and know, okay, this is what Muslims believe. This is what they say. These are their sources. The second part is to then deal with the uh, historical, archaeological, and theological critiques of that traditional view, because there are a lot of problems as we get into it. And the third part would be to show the implications of that critique. What does that say about Islam? So that we know what we can say when we, fourthly, reach out to Muslims. In each chapter, I give um, ideas based on what that chapter is about concerning how we can reach out to Muslims using that information. So, with the background, the traditional view is that there is a man, Muhammad, who had uh, these visions and revelations from a god named Allah in uh, Arabia in a city named Mecca back in uh, the early 600s, born in 570, they say, died uh, uh, 632. Um, so uh, he lived 62 years, and uh, he got these revelations over a period of 23 years, and he started preaching them in Mecca. They didn't like it so much. He then went to Medina, another city about 200 miles north, and they were more receptive, and then he gained power. And uh, in the 10 years he was there, they had uh, great power and growth, and they went back and conquered Mecca. And then shortly after that, he died, but his followers went out and conquered 50% of Christian lands in less than 100 years. And mm. that's how uh, Islam began and grew. That's the traditional story. But right. then we're finding now, archaeologically, that, uh, for instance, there is no record of Mecca existing in the time of Muhammad. Uh, it's not on any of the maps. It's not on any of the travel logs. It's not mentioned in any narratives. It's uh, like it never existed, and perhaps it did not exist at that time. And there are reasons that uh, can explain when it came about, why it came about, why it was uh, put into this tradition that is so important now, because all Muslims pray toward Mecca. Mecca has the Kaaba, that cube-shaped uh, area that uh, on the side has this, uh, as, uh, this meteorite that they kind of uh, commemorate and, and find to be a holy thing. Uh, and, and and hang hang on, Daniel. Just, I just want to jump in. Sorry to interrupt. But yeah. you are. this is not something that you got on some conspiratorial website posted by some nut jobs. This is something that you examine with serious scholars and serious institutions. I, I, I just want to reiterate that because some of what you're saying will strike people as like, what was this guy talking about? So I, I didn't just find Daniel somewhere on, on, on a website and he's got a following of three people. Okay. He, he is a scholar in these areas. So the, what you're talking about is stuff that scholars, researchers, historians are actually talking about today. Yes. Uh, that, some of the finest scholars, uh, Islamists, not 
Islamists, the terrorists, but Islamists, those who study uh, the origins and the development of Islam. And what they're finding is all this wealth of information. For you see, Muslims did not write down uh, their history. They didn't write anything about Muhammad. The first that we hear anything about Muhammad from a Muslim source is around 691 A.D. That's 60-some years after his supposed death in 632, and that's on the Dome of the Rock, where um, Abd malik the caliph at that time, had uh, put up these uh, different phrases, many of them uh, from the Quran or, the, or from early writings that became the Quran. And that's the first that we hear of this uh, character, Muhammad, from those Muslim sources. And um, yet, uh, there's the, all these stories that develop later, 150, 200 years, um, about the, the earliest biography was 150 to 200 years after dealing with Muhammad. It's like trying to write on George Washington now without any written sources, because uh, if anything, it would have had to have been oral history passed on. But we're finding from these historical sources that I'm mentioning, these other scholars that are researching in this area, they're uncovering a wealth of information to show that these stories really did not happen. Uh, the traditional right. stories may be um, based on something, but what we have in the traditional stories is much, much different from what history is showing us. So I'm going back to some of the best scholars. And got it. I just got to, yeah, got to jump in. We've, we've got a break. So I've got two questions when we come back. One, do you share this with a Muslim? And two... Is there just one Quran, and is that what happens? One holy version? Let's uncover the truth. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire. Uh, hey, Kai, I'm I'm not really hearing myself in my own ear. It's not sure what happened here. I'm speaking with Daniel Janicek, professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary and elsewhere. His book, The Guide to Answering Islam, What Every Christian Needs to Know About Islam and the Rise of Radical Islam. All right, obviously our time is limited. You teach whole courses on this, but as as you find more and more questionable about the claims of Islam, the historic claims of Islam. For, forget the idea of Muhammad being the perfect man and, and the Quran being the, you know, the perfect eternal word of God and all that, but just some of the alleged history and things like that, the, the origins. Is this the kind of thing that you share with a Muslim? Is, is it helpful to do so? Uh, or if you have this knowledge, how does it help you share the gospel with a Muslim? Well, I think that this is one of the areas that we as Christians need to uh, understand better. In fact, apologetics deals with three areas. We need to understand what we believe. We need to understand what others believe, like Muslims. We need to be able to defend what we believe so that we can refute error and teach the truth of the gospel. And I find that uh, dealing with these historical issues, like uh, Muhammad, did he was he really the the person that is described in Islam, or was he some apocalyptic creature who was picked up and 
and kind of uh, developed from a later age. Uh, the same thing with the Quran. We're finding that the uh, the Quran was uh, uh, probably a mishmash of a number of different writings that were around at that time, and even some before the time of Muhammad, which makes it even more interesting, and then was kind of collected in the early uh, 700s. Um, and put together, but that was a long time after Muhammad. Um, yes, we need to know these historical uh, critiques because Muslims need to know if they are following a false religion and a false god, they need to understand that. And uh, people like uh, Nabil Qureshi, who is a good friend of mine, came to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ because he was confronted with these things by some uh, really good Christian scholars, and he had to deal with them as a Muslim who really loved Allah. And then he realized that this Allah that he was following was not the real God. And so he followed the truth. And so we need to know the truth about the beginnings of Islam, or even Islam as it is today, so that we can reach out to Muslims. Because this critique, this historical critique, will help... Uh, deal with their foundation, and then they start questioning why, what they believe, and why they should follow Islam if it is false. So I think these are very important areas to, to deal with, and there are Muslims who are very uh, apprehensive now because they're realizing that the Quran is in trouble, Muhammad is in trouble, the origins of Islam are historically uh, inaccurate according to the traditional view, and they're raising questions themselves, and that's exciting to see. Yeah, that that is amazing when the doors are open and questions are being asked. Uh, Daniel, what about this idea that, well, you know, the Bible can't be trusted because we have thousands of manuscripts, but there's only one copy of the Quran, and every version of the Quran adheres to that is utterly perfect, and it proves the inspiration of the Quran, whereas the, the Bible's untrustworthy uh, because we have so many manuscripts with, with minor variants in the manuscripts? Well, first of all, the, uh, the idea that there's only one Quran is patently false. Uh, in fact, the Quran that is being distributed today as the perfect Quran wasn't even put together finally until 1924, and that was the Cairo uh, edition. And before that, you had all kinds of manuscripts, all kinds of um, different um, uh, copies, uh, different errors, different um, problems, uh, even in the, the earliest development. So there were many Qurans, and, uh, you know, historically we hear about some of them being burned, and probably in the time of Abdul Malik, under the, al Fujaj, his governor, there was a historical reference to burning of certain manuscripts because they didn't uh, comply with others. And there was a movement to try to pull these different Qurans, and there were different Qurans, into one established one. Uh, now, with the New Testament, what's so exciting about that is that we go back to the earliest, and we, uh, we may not have the original, but we don't have the original uh, document of anything from that time. We have... Uh, the earliest copies of anything from that time, that's for sure, uh, and from the first century. And in comparing these, we can really get to the root uh, of, the, uh, of what the original would have been. In fact, uh, uh, biblical scholars 
will say that because of all these different manuscripts and the comparison value, we have uh, 99% or more uh, confident that what we have now in our uh, in our Bibles is what was written at the time uh, shortly after Jesus by the apostles. And that is exciting. Islam cannot say that, and we can show that historically, archaeologically, and otherwise. Yes, yeah, so the fact is we have an abundance of riches of manuscripts, the Bible, both Old and New Testament, being the best-preserved books of the ancient world with the best evidence for accuracy and authenticity and, and historical confirmation, none of which the Quran have. So basically, this would be kind of like the, the, the argument there's just one version of the Quran and it's the perfect version, it's the only one we ever had. It's kind of like in a country where someone comes to power, a despot, and then they have an election and the only candidate you can vote for is that one. And they say, see, we had a unanimous vote. It's the same kind of thing. But Daniel, in the midst of this, what what is happening? Are more and more Muslims questioning things either because of radical Islam or because of the legalism that they live with and they know there's something more going on? I mean, you're, you're a scholar, but you're involved in this on a practical level. From you can te- from what you can tell, what what is happening with Muslim seekers, Muslim questioners? Is it really growing the way we hear that it is? It's exciting. I mean, think of it this way: in the last twenty years, there have been more Muslims who have come to the Lord than in the past fourteen hundred years. God is moving. Uh, Muslims are having dreams and visions of Christ coming to them, talking to them, and uh, through that, they are led to to Jesus. Millions. A million. And uh, in Iran, there may be up to a million Christians uh, at this time. And uh, you, you see this going on because they are fed up with Islam. They're fed up with this uh, um, authoritarian, uh, religio, socio-religio uh, process. Or, uh, I, well, it is a religion, but it's a, it is a... Um, it's an authoritarian political system. It is like Marxism in that way, where it's controlling every bit of your life, and they're tired of that. They want to be free. They want to know the true God, and they're seeking. And this is the time where we can go ahead and help them question their own uh, belief system, because it has a lot of problems, and that's why I wrote the book. I wanted Christians to understand what is really going on, what's behind the scenes, and uh, then how they can take that information and reach out to their Muslim friends and bring them to the Lord through that witness. So, friends, I've been speaking with Daniel Janosik, J-A-N-O-S-I-K, The Guide to Answering Islam. It's about 350 pages long. Part one, Controversies about the Development of Islam. Part two, Two then deals with beliefs and practices, and then part three, jihad, crusades, and ISIS. Part four, approaches to reaching Muslims with the gospel. And then there are full indexes for subjects you want to look at, bibliography to study more. I have no question that if I have the time to go through all the material in this book carefully, there's a ton that I'll learn, Daniel, especially about the origins of Islam. So friends, again, the author, Daniel Janosik, J-A-N-O-S-I-K, the book, 
the guide to answering Islam, what every Christian needs to know about Islam and the rise of radical Islam. Hey, Daniel, real quick, are there any other writings you have or a website you'd like to post pe- uh, send people to? Okay, yeah. The, uh, I have another book, John of Damascus, First Apologist for the Muslims. That's all. Both of these are on Amazon.com. Just type in my name, Daniel Janosik. And also my um, uh, website, just the first name, dot, last name, daniel.janosik.com, danieljanosik.com, no dot in between the names, danieljanosik.com, and I have all the materials there, um, videos, um, articles, um, uh, different conference talks, and everything like that. So Excellent. thank you for uh, mentioning that. I'd oh, love yeah, to sure thing. People, uh, look at that material. It's all there and, free. Know, and, and once again, as has often happened, I mispronounce a guest name the entire show, but they're polite enough not to mention it until the end. So <laughs> now you got the, the right pronunciation. Hey, Daniel, keep up the good work. I'm, I'm sure our paths will cross at upcoming apologetics conferences and the like. God bless you, man. Thank you very much. God bless you. All right. Thanks. Hey, hey friends, uh, let, me, let me just say this last thing about what's happening politically. Can I, can I urge you? Don't make your primary identity pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Make your primary identity follower of Jesus, son of God, daughter of God, disciple, people lover. All right? Let that be your primary identity. And then act and vote accordingly. But primary identity, let it be in Jesus. Back with you tomorrow, Thursday, Jewish Thursday.